Welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, this is week 13, and for those of you who've been listening, we are finally discussing nutrition. The first week of the show, I talked about the problem that most bothers and fascinates me in the world, which is that human beings lack reliable access to the knowledge we need to flourish. And exhibit A was nutrition. This is something that seems to have huge impacts on our lives. Certainly, it at least has impacts on just how we feel during the day. Just about anyone can perceive that eating different ways. And there's so much information in the world, and there are a lot of smart people who have studied this issue, but for almost everyone, it's almost impossible to know what's true and what isn't, and therefore it's hard to decide what to eat, and yet we think, oh, there might be huge stakes here. There might, it might make a difference of 10 or 15 years to my life if I eat one way versus another, uh, another way. And this certainly bothers me, and I know it bothers a lot of you because I've gotten a lot of questions about that, and I think I indicated, well, I eat a certain way now that seems to work quite well for me, and people ask about that. But for me, the interesting issue isn't how I eat right now because I very much think that I'm sure it's not the ideal way, and it could even be very flawed. But how do we go about seeking better knowledge of this issue. So last week I mentioned that in some ways I'd been putting this issue off because it's it's very difficult and it's a little bit scary because nutrition is nowhere near my area of specialization. And yet the fact that it's so scary and so difficult and that it's so hard to find anything makes me feel motivated to see, okay, what what can I do in terms of making some progress for me and also for listeners of this program. I think of us all as students of life. We're people that believe that knowledge is power, that better knowledge is going to empower us more. And there are all these different issues that are involved in our flourishing and our our success in every area of life that involve these complex things that we're not getting really good knowledge about now. So I thought, okay, I'm going to just start tackling this step by step. I'll make lots of mistakes, but this is something that that needs to be done. On today's program, I want to talk about two processes that I'm using. There are going to be a lot more, but these are two that I think are essential if we're going to have any chance at getting good knowledge. And if you've heard the program before, I talk a lot about knowledge systems, particularly knowledge acquisition systems, and those are the sets of processes that we use to acquire knowledge or sometimes to fail to acquire knowledge. And one of my core convictions in life and in the show is that a lot of the way that we're going to get better knowledge is to have better knowledge acquisition systems. And the more we have that, that should also influence the knowledge explanation systems of people who know things and hopefully have them compete. And I've talked about that on on. Uh, other episodes on on how that can be done. But let's just take as a given, right now we don't have any control over the people who know a lot. What can what can we do? So started just jumping into this. And one thing I did this week 
was I had some conversations with doctors that I respect. And these are people I respect them in part because they're research-oriented. And also these are people that I've known for a while and regard as intellectually honest. And interestingly, none of the doctors I talked to were specialists in nutrition. And one reason for this is just that I don't know anyone who's a specialist in nutrition. I know people who know quite a bit about it. But the other reason is because you can often learn a lot about a field by talking to people who are experts in related fields, but not in that field. And a reason for that is that often in a certain field, people will have faulty knowledge acquisition systems themselves. There will, there will be certain kinds of bad tendencies, and I'm going to talk about a couple of those today. And often people outside the field are better at saying, hey, there are some deficiencies in what these people are doing, either what they're doing and or how they're communicating it. And when I talked to these doctors in the past week, I got a takeaway from them, and this might seem obvious, but I hadn't been applying it enough in my own processing of claims about nutrition. And the, the takeaway I got was that public commentators on nutrition have a major tendency to exaggerate. And there, there's a couple of different ways in which this is true. Exaggerating the amount that's knowable right now by anyone, period. That's one. Two is expressing way too much certainty about their particular position, which everyone is doing for all these different views. So obviously at least some of them are wrong, but maybe all of them are wrong. And then three, this was a really interesting one, the importance of their views, or more broadly, the the importance of making certain nutritional decisions. So the, the three big categories are, one is exaggerating the amount that can be known right now, two is their certainty in their particular view, and three is the importance of the field. And maybe three doesn't make sense yet, but I'll, I'll go into it after I go into the others. And to, to illustrate how this works and, and why this works, I want to talk first about how, how we are susceptible to this, and specifically about how I am susceptible to this, even though I try not to be susceptible. So I was watching a video last week. I've been watching some videos from different schools of thought, and this is one from what we can call the carnivore school of thought which may seem totally implausible, you should just eat meat, but there are some really articulate people making that case, and there are some really interesting seeming use cases of this, and I've personally talked to a couple of people who are really smart and claim to have really good results, and this is not at all the way that I eat right now, but it's something I'd consider. And I was watching this video, it was by a guy named Dr. Barry Groves, and I I was watching the video, and there was a certain definite logic to what he's saying. What was interesting to me, observing myself watch it, was I had this feeling of, I want this to be true. So sometimes people have desires for things to be false because it contradicts their worldview. But for me in nutrition, I don't have any kind of worldview that says oh, it's really good to eat plants or it's really good to eat animals. Like I don't have some fundamental ethical preference there. My, my ethical preference is I want to do what's good for humans, including the human that is me. And 
but what I found is since I don't have that kind, I, I'm not a vegan or something. I don't have that kind of uh, worldview that we should be a vegan morally and then hoping that that's the, the best kind of diet for us. I don't have that at all. So I, I had this feeling watching this video. I really want this to be true. And why was that? And then I realized, well, because this guy's making really forceful arguments. And A, one implication is that it's possible to know a lot about nutrition. B, is that he knows a lot, that his view is really the right view. And then C, that it's going to make a huge difference in my life if I adopt his view. And all of those are naturally and understandably compelling things. All things being equal, we want there to be more knowledge in the world. We want to have access to the right version of it, and we want to be confident in that. And then we want that knowledge to make a difference. And when I was talking to these doctors, I, I reflected on this, and then it occurred to me, well, how much is known about this. And and they raised a whole bunch of variables expressing skepticism about how much could be known in nutrition. And maybe I'll go into those some other episode, but in terms of the it's very one thing it's just very hard to do the kind of testing that you try to do generally to validate things like you know randomized double blind clinical trials. You know that that's one kind of aspect, but just talking about certain features of the human body and how we process things that are very hard to know. And then even when you study populations, there are all these differences in the populations uh, on all sorts of levels. So how do you know what's going on there? They just pointed out there's a lot to say that it, it might be hard to know things. And one thing I noticed in watching different kinds of videos is that most of the public commentators do not acknowledge that at all. And one thing they almost never do is say, okay, there are certain things that we all know, that we all agree on, and then there are certain things that I think I know that I disagree with others on, and then there are certain things that I don't think any of us know. And this is a really important thing to look for. This is one of my, my big lessons, is that I want experts who acknowledge varying levels of confidence and ignorance on different issues. I want experts who acknowledge varying levels of confidence and ignorance on different issues. So when someone just says on a very controversial issue, they just give like, hey, A, B, C, it all just follows perfectly. And they they act like they have everything figured out. This is a big, big flag. It's also a big flag because they're not acknowledging the dissenting views and dealing with those. And I'll deal with that in a moment. But even when there aren't these expressions of different degrees of confidence, that is a that's a flag maybe about the person's methodology but certainly about whether i can trust their presentation versus when i see people and they say they say very clearly okay this is what i know this is what i don't know this is where there's disagreement when they give me those different degrees or gradations that is that that can almost lull me too much. I mean, I can almost be susceptible to that because it's so rare and it's so necessary to do. And one thing I want everyone here to think about is certainly when you're processing anything, look for people who are acknowledging varying levels of confidence and ignorance on different issues in their field. So that's a good general thing. But in particular on nutrition, 
I'm really interested to know from you. Either you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com or go on the Facebook group, facebook.com slash human flourishing project. Let me know whom have you seen, if anyone in the realm of nutrition that you feel like is really good at specifying different levels of confidence and ignorance, because that can help us winnow the field in terms of people that can be good sources of potential good sources of knowledge and also just understanding the different debates. Now, one other aspect of this that I mentioned, so there's the issue of there's a tendency to overrate how much is knowable at a given time and to be over certain in their field. There's also a tendency to inflate the importance of the field. Now, nutrition is obviously important to some degree and, and probably to a substantial degree. Certainly, as I said before, in terms of how we feel, it makes a big difference, at least within certain bounds. I think we've all had the experience of eating a certain way and we feel really, really bad. But with anything, there's the potential of exaggerating its magnitude. And sometimes people will act like, okay, well, if you're a vegan, then you're basically guaranteed to live to 90. And if you eat all meat, then you're basically guaranteed to die at 60. And, and interestingly, you hear people say almost the exact opposite. And one of the doctors pointed out, you know, when we do studies, one question we have when we're, when we're doing these studies is how big is the impact of the variable that we're studying? And she said, well, you know, with nutrition, maybe we don't know. Maybe it's, it's a variable, but maybe there are other variables that are drowning it out. And notice with this, as with the other variables in terms of how much knowledge exists and level of certainty, there, is a, there are incentives in place to encourage people to exaggerate these. As I said before, because all things being equal, we want all of these things to be at a high level. And if we want them to be at a high level, then certainly the media that we consume want them to be at a high level. And thus... As a general rule, media will tend to promote as authorities people who express a very high degree of confidence in how much they know and in their particular view, and then a high degree of confidence in how much it matters to our lives. I've certainly seen this very, very directly studying environmental issues, a lot of which I've studied in, in quite a bit of depth. And I see that when I, when I talk to different people in a field, even if I disagree with them versus looking at mainstream portrayal, if you, if you take something like uh, climate science, just there's a clear tendency for media to look for the people with the most dramatic public predictions. And that's understandable in a certain sense and, and who express a very high degree of confidence. So, for example, there's a guy named... James Hansen, who's probably the most prominent climate scientist, and starting in the 80s, he expressed a very high degree of confidence in a certain uh, set of models, which in my reading did not go very well. But it was, it's, no, it's no accident that he was chosen and promoted because he expressed that, hey, we know a lot about how human beings impact climate, and I am right myself and this is really important. The fate of the world depends on it. And any given one of those could be, and I think in, all, in this case, all are, exaggerated. It doesn't mean it's not important, 
but it's really it's really a disservice when we get these things exaggerated. And the thing we have to realize as knowledge consumers is that there are systematic incentives for these things to be exaggerated. And thus, one thing we want to do as knowledge consumers is seek out and reward experts who are much more objective, who are intellectually honest. And one big giveaway there is do they acknowledge varying levels of confidence and ignorance on different aspects of their issue? So again, I would love to get any examples from you of experts you've seen, particularly on nutrition, but if you have other fields too, that's great, whom you feel like, okay, these are, these people are really good. So that's one big process that I wanted to talk about today is seeking out the experts who acknowledge the varying levels of confidence and ignorance. And the second process is one that I've talked about in a previous episode, I believe episode two, but it's very relevant here. And I'll set it up with the problem that necessitates it, which is that in trying to acquire real knowledge in nutrition and in other fields, we find that public experts very rarely acknowledge and answer the best arguments of their opponents. They very rarely acknowledge and answer the best arguments of their opponents. And as I've mentioned in a couple episodes, the ability to acknowledge and address the best arguments of your opponents is so valuable. It's so it's such a service. If you're right, it's such a service to the people listening because it just makes it so much easier for them to tell what's right. So I'll give you some examples of not doing this in different things that I've watched. So let's say I've been watching videos from two very different schools of thought. One is, we can call it the the carnivore school, saying that you should eat primarily high-fat meat. And then the other we can call the low-fat plant-based. Sometimes people call it vegan, but I think low-fat plant-based is probably a better summary of that. And so I've been you know reading from these different uh, experts or claimed experts and watching their videos, and there are a lot of really smart people. And what's fascinating is each of them makes points that seem like they could be really important, and it's super frustrating to not see them addressed. So just give you a couple. I was watching this Barry Groves presentation, and he makes a point. He he addresses now in a sense he does this a little bit. Um, because he addressed the argument, and this is probably why I found it compelling, but then there's stuff that he's not doing too, but he, he's, um, he was looking at animals that eat, that eat plants, like gorillas, and he was taking the argument that, well, look, there are all these big animals, including primates, and at least many of the primates just eat vegetation, and they have almost no fat in their diet. And long story short, he had an argument that, well, not really, because actually the way they have a unique way of processing vegetables so that they actually create an enormous amount of fat from vegetables. And so they're actually being fueled by fat because that's that's the, the way in which they're accessing the energy. So this, I don't know anything about this, but this is a fascinating kind of claim. And it's a really interesting counterclaim against people saying, oh no, they're just eating, they're just eating vegetation. And then if it's true what he says about how they are actually using fat in practice, that's something that 
even if the carnivore diet's overall wrong, the other side should be addressing. And I thought, you know, I've never, I've read a bunch of these low-fat plant-based, I've never seen that from them. But then they have a whole bunch of arguments about, and there are so many examples of this, but I'll just give a couple. They have so many arguments, the low-fat plant-based people, about population studies and just showing that, okay, the, the populations who are most long-lived are eating overwhelmingly low-fat plant-based diets. And what was interesting, when I watched Barry Grove's presentation, he would talk about certain tribes that ate in the way that he prescribed, but he didn't give much about their longevity. And so he didn't address, and he, he certainly didn't, and the way he he characterized eating low-fat plant-based meant it, it, it seemed like it was insane. It seemed like if you eat this way, you're just going to be completely debilitated. And yet there are all these people who are eating this way and they seem to be living a long time and he's not addressing that or that line of argument. So what am I supposed to make of that? And then, you know, they would say, and then there's all these just completely contradictory things like the, the carnivore people will say, yeah, our way prevents heart disease. And the plant-based people will certainly say, our way prevents heart disease. And each of those has a certain mechanism or claimed mechanism to it. And where are the people addressing the other people's mechanism? So imagine how great it would be if people really address the arguments of the others, because the more you did that, the more you would get a sense of what are the different mechanisms at work in nutrition and in the body that processes nutrition? How do they work together? Which ones are important, which aren't? And then crucially, related to the first point today, how much do we know about any of these? Because there's a, a big tendency to exaggerate how much is known. With the different presentations I've seen, almost nobody is saying like, oh, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this. They're expressing lots of confidence and they're bringing up points that are really th that that seem compelling, but they're not addressing the compelling points of others. One I read from the low-fat plant-based camp was a claim that, well, when you eat fat, like the body is just very, very good at turning dietary fat into fat, and that actually when you look at the fat on someone's body, you can trace the animal that it came from just by the fat. And the idea is that the, the body is just so good at turning dietary fat into body fat that it just like gloms on. It's like, oh, salmon fat? Okay, it just becomes your fat versus they're arguing, well, other things have a lot more difficulty becoming fat. So is that true? Is that relevant? You know, does that actually lead to obesity? Because it could be, well, maybe that's true, but maybe your body feeds off that fat, so it's fine. I would just love to see these things acknowledged and addressed. And the fact that they're not done speaks ill of the explanation abilities of the people in the field, at least the people in the field that I've seen. So what I'm in what what I would recommend always doing is looking for experts who acknowledge and answer the best arguments of their opponents. That's going to be a very small subset of experts, but that's great because just as much as possible, go for them. Because if you can find them, you're going to get a lot clearer a lot more quickly versus if you just, you could find a hundred people who make compelling isolated claims, and but you have no idea how those claims fit together and really no way of knowing what's true 
and what's not. So big lessons today for me, just thinking about it at this stage, are I want experts who acknowledge varying levels of confidence and ignorance, and I want experts who acknowledge and address the best arguments of their opponents. And from you, the listeners, I'm interested in who in nutrition have you found that does either of these or both of these? Because I would love to read them, and I think that would move me forward a lot more quickly in terms of deciding on truth and falsehood, or even, this is going to be a subject we talk about in future weeks, even just what's worth experimenting with. Because one one theme I'll talk about in a future episode, I've talked about it a little bit before, but I'll talk about it in the context of nutrition, is that often it's very hard to get really pure general knowledge in a field, but you can get enough knowledge to give yourself a couple of concrete options to test, and then you can just test with your own body. And within certain parameters, that can be a really, really good idea because you can validate something for your own body pretty well that a whole bunch of studies for various reasons might not be able to tell you was good. But even to know what I should try, so should I try this carnivore way of eating? I would like to know what are the carnivores, how do they answer all the arguments of the low-fat plant-based people, how do they talk about like longevity issues? Is it possible that maybe that's a diet that's really good in terms of it makes you feel really good and hearty and strong for a certain amount of time, but you don't live as long? I mean, I was looking at Barry Groves and it's like, okay, he died at 77. Now that's anecdotal. Does that mean anything? It was a heart thing and they said it was genetic, but, and you know, Dr. Atkins died in his 70s. So maybe, yeah, I think it was in his 70s. But the point I'm just making is that it's so hard to sort through these things the way they're being presented. So we really want people who acknowledge degrees of confidence and ignorance and who acknowledge and address the best arguments of their opponents. So assignment for this week, if you choose to accept it and if you have any clue, is let us know on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash human flourishing project, any experts that you think at all meet these criteria, or you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Let me say that again. Email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, if you want to make sure to get weekly updates about the show, go to humanflourishingproject.com and put your email in and then you will be on the email list. All right. We're going to be discussing nutrition in upcoming episodes. I'm not exactly sure how often and on what frequency it in part uh, is going to relate to feedback from the community and with different people that I talk to. But this is something I want to be pursuing over time. And in general, I want to do a lot of work in the next quarter on knowledge acquisition systems. So give me feedback. Let me know how you like this episode, how you like others. But I, I really do, I have a sense already that that people are really interested in how do we separate knowledge from non-knowledge. I think nutrition is a pretty good place to start. I may take on other topics. I may share some of my work from on energy and environmental issues where I've been doing knowledge acquisition study lately. But in general, lots on knowledge acquisition. And in some number of weeks, hopefully, we'll all have a little bit more clarity on how to eat in a way that helps us flourish. So that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project.